0: That was a shameless attempt to get everybody to clap. <laughs> Standing over there thinking, you're cutting into my time, man. I have my Bible open to Genesis chapter 1, if you would turn there. And we'll get to um, partway into verse 2 today. Somebody said to me this last week, how long is this study actually going to take? Because you got like two ver- words down last week, right? Um, Gonna take what it's gonna take, but we're gonna get into verse two this morning. So, if you have your Bible with you, I'm gonna ask you to go there uh, before we get into that. A piece of news for you: uh, this last Thursday, I signed the paperwork and we closed on the 26 acres north of here. Right, so that was pretty exciting. Um, if you were not here in the last month or so when we announced that that 26 acres became available, that adjoins our land right here. We have 14 acres and the 26 acres became available back in April or May, and we began in the discussions, the elders um, talking about how we could carry that off. Anyways, we, we did purchase it. We purchased it with cash, so there's no debt whatsoever, and New Hope now owns 40 acres, so that's pretty cool. So you will see that used you know, for nature trails and for bonfire areas, walking areas. But uh, eventually, we need to expand the parking. Have, many of you have experienced parking issues here. and You know what's going on. So eventually, we'll get some more parking area up to there to the north. But that's, that's for a future date and a future discussion. So back to Genesis 1. If you're new, we're working through a study called Eternity to Eternity. And working from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, Uh, Lucky you, you stepped in on the second week, so you're here right from the very beginning. And last week, what we explored was God's eternality, how in that phrase, in the beginning, God was representative of what's in store for you and I, that God promises eternity because He's the owner of eternity. Now, just speaking of eternity and what we talked about for a moment last week, in, in the way of touching on that, here's what we understand. In the time that Jesus was among us, While he was here on planet Earth in the first century, he said something to the effect that he had an eternity before time was. And this is what it sounds like. He's in the garden. He's about to be arrested. And it's the night before the crucifixion. And he's praying. And one of the disciples captures Jesus' prayer and writes it down. And he says to the Father... Father, would you restore to me the glory that I had with you once before the world was? Meaning, he existed in eternity. That's a really important component of our Christian fundamental understanding of our faith. Because Jesus can't give to you that which he doesn't have. Uh, look with me on the screen at this statement, John 5, 24. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Uh, God's made a promise there. God the Son has made a commitment. If you believe in him, you have eternal life. As a sinner who's completely separated from God and has no relationship with God, there is no hope for you without his capacity To give to that, give to us that which belongs to Him. He owns eternity, He is eternity, therefore He can give us eternity. Now to date, in the last number of weeks, we've looked at where Jesus fits in the Trinity, and we've talked about eternality. This particular morning, we're going to look at the role that the Trinity played together collectively, especially the Holy Spirit, in the action of creation how you're going to see them in complete harmony. Before we jump into that, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you thanking you for what's already happened here in this service. We saw children dedicated to you, and that would just be enough for that. We thank you for that imagery. And we're able to worship you and sing songs that declare truth about who you are. You're the only one who can do the things that we proclaimed. So we thank you for that. And now we get to turn our attention to your word. So I pray, Father, right now that you would fill us with a sense of wonder and awe and mystery. God, we pray for these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. If you've grown up in church, you very likely have a well developed theology. If you are an adult in church and you've been here for any length of time or in another church setting, you probably have a view of the Bible, and you've studied it, and you've spent time in it, and you've applied yourself to it, and I applaud that. I absolutely applaud the time that you've already dedicated to studying these things that we're about to look at, because much of society does not bother to do what you've done, but I'm going to challenge you this morning. I'm going to challenge you that rather than resting on the things that you already know, that you would allow your mind to expand this morning to a greater degree, to the degree that you would be consumed with the wonder of God, and that it would absolutely overwhelm you. I've included a couple quotes in your notes this morning as well. They're going to be up on the screen. The first one I want you to see is from Dr. John Piper. John said this, The more knowledge we have of God from the Bible, the more of His reality we grasp, and the more mystery we see. The benefit of increasing mystery this way is that what we do know gives direction to what we don't know. We do not wonder if the mystery we don't grasp contains a sinister God, because of what we do grasp directs us away from that speculation. It's a really good insight. If you need to read that again, grab your notes and and read that again and, and catch it while it's still on the screen. Read what he's saying. In the way that we understand the truth of God's Word, it allows us to understand God's not against us, God is for us, and there's mysteries that are revealed as we study these things. But let's step back 200 years in time to the time of Jonathan Edwards, who absolutely captured exactly the same thought. He said this in 1758, "'Under the Old Testament, the Church of God was not told near so much about the Trinity as they are now, but what the New Testament has revealed, though it has more open to our view the nature of God, yet it has increased the number of visible mysteries and the things that appear to us exceeding wonderful and incomprehensible.'" Absolutely. So, I recognize that the words I'm about to use with you to describe the Trinity, they strain to absolutely capture what God is. Human words point toward reality. What we're about to describe points to reality. Even the Bible, human words, points to reality to describe the wonder of God, yet we really, really strain at completeness. We strain to capture it. So you find John writing the book of Revelation, and as you read the book of Revelation, you find him using the word like over and over and over. He says, it was like this. God is like this. When I saw his throne, it was like this because he's reaching for words to really describe the wonder and the amazement Or Moses on Mount Sinai. Look with me at this particular verse, Exodus 24, 9. Moses and Aaron, Aaron is Moses' brother, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. Don't ask me what lapis lazuli is. I don't know. After the first service, somebody came to me because they pulled their phone out and they looked up lapis lazuli and showed me a picture. It's an incredibly brilliant blue stone, apparently. I know what pavement is. I know what black asphalt is. And Moses says, we looked, and it's like God was standing on this clear blanket of brilliant blue, clear asphalt. How else do you capture that? And he says, it's like that. Or when Paul was caught up to the third heaven. And he writes about that in 2 Corinthians. Look with me at this, 2 Corinthians 12, 4. I heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And it appears there was this combination of things that were too fantastic and off limits. And so Paul can't even write about it. Even though he saw things, God says, not there, don't go there. What I know is our human tongue fails to capture the greatness of all that God is, especially when it comes to grasping the Trinity. And to be sure, we do see today in 2021 through a mere dimly. We, We look at it as dim, lit glass, according to what 1 Corinthians 13, 12 said. We just have concepts of the Trinity, and we're reminded of just how finite our mind is. So I accept the fact that all human language about God is kind of like baby talk. I've said for a long time, and if you've been at New Hope for any length of time, you've heard me say that when God gave us the Bible, I think he gave us like the third grade version. Here, chew on this for a couple thousand years. See if you can figure it out. I know that there's information there available to us, but it's sometimes so overwhelming to the mind, so mysterious But as imperfect as our languages are, imperfect does not mean useless. Our languages may come up really short, but where it does carry truth, it is absolutely valuable. So on one side, I accept. Any explanation that I formulate regarding the Trinity is like cultured, refined infant cooing, almost like blabbering. But at the same time, I'm driven to know more. So here is part of the more that you and I can know. Visible in the Bible is this concurrent theme of these three personages, these three divine entities, if you will, and they're synchronized All that is described as God, they're synchronized around, harmonious in all their actions, seemingly completely independent, yet acting as one, and each of the three are divine and equal, and yet they carry out very specific roles, especially in the work of redemption, you see it most clearly in the New Testament when it's describing Jesus' action on our behalf. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2. We'll get to Genesis 1 in just a minute. <laughs> Read this, Philippians six. Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And by the way, that ranks as one of the theologically most profound statements ever written. Wrap your mind around that one. You can chew on that one for just hundreds of years. God the Son becomes Jesus the man, and yet he doesn't cease to be a member of the Trinity, but he has a completely different role than the other members of the Trinity, so, John, in concert with the things that Paul describes, write this. You saw this four weeks ago. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's saying, he's both God and he's with God. And if that doesn't trouble your mind enough, go on 13 verses later. It says this in verse 14, John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So 14 verses later, the Son becomes flesh, fully human. God the Son becomes Jesus the man. And Paul writes, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You wrap your mind around these things, and it makes you want to say, am I crazy? How can I grasp this? And this one who is God the Son, Jesus the man, begins speaking of a third personage. This Holy Spirit, and He speaks of Him as a very distinct person. Here's three examples for you. John 14, 26. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. John 16, 7. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Or this one, John 16, 13. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative. But whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore, I said that He takes of Mine and will disclose it to you. As you're reading these things, very likely you're noticing a pattern emerging here of a phrase that I haven't heard from anyone else. I think I've coined it, so I'm going to call it a Mark Kring phrase, okay? Shared individualism. And it's a conundrum for me in my own mind because they seem juxtaposed to each other. But as you see these passages, you see this shared individualism in responsibility, The Trinity is actually the perfect example of holding all things together in common. What the Son has is the Father's. What the Father has is the Son's. And the Spirit does, in concert with the Father and Son, everything that they're in agreement over. There is this total absence of possessiveness within the Trinity. Rather, there's commonality no wonder this is the characteristic of the early church in Acts chapter two. The Holy Spirit arrives, pours out the Spirit upon the early believers in Jesus Christ. And what are we told about them? They all have each other's back. They're selling things. They're helping to support each other. They're holding things together in common. It's an uncharacteristic of human nature. Look with me at Acts two forty four. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And by the way, just to be really clear, that is not talking about communism, it's talking about commonism, and there is a difference. Communism is when a government seizes and takes things from people and gives it to other people. Commonism is biblical. Biblical. Communism is talking about people freely sharing of what they have, of their resources. Communism is not what this is describing here. I find a really important question when I come to communism. I have to ask myself, what do I own in the way of resources that I hold in common with the church? What do you own that you hold in common with the church? That they were selling their real estate to help each other out doesn't mean that everybody in the church put all of their homes up for sale. There's 30,000 people in the church in the first century, and they're all living in Jerusalem. If 30,000 people put all their real estate on the market, they would crash the economy. What they're doing is they're selling things that they have available so that they can share with each other, helping to support each other. We have something like that here in the Compassionate Care Fund You may not have noticed that on the offering envelopes when you give money to the church, but there's a category on the offering envelopes called compassionate care. And with that, we use the funds that come into the compassionate care category to actually help people pay their power bills and to help individuals who can't buy diapers or or need money for food. That's what the compassionate care fund is about. That's a reflection of the Acts chapter 2 church. But back to the Trinity. When Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit, he's not speaking of some vague, ambiguous force like in Star Wars. He's talking about a real person, one who teaches you and dwells with you and instructs you. This one who secures you for eternity and convicts you of sin, that's what he's speaking of. And this personage is distinct from Jesus and distinct from the Father because we're told the Father will send him. Now, to complicate matters a little bit further, we're almost to Genesis 1, just bear with me. To complicate it just a little bit further, we're told the entire Godhead is spirit. Look at John 4.24. John 4.24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So God is a spirit and God has a spirit. Explain that one to me, okay? God is a spirit and God has a spirit and it's distinct from God the Father and it's distinct from God the Son because this spirit intercedes to the Father. The Trinity is one of those truths that's so far beyond human comprehension. It really frustrates people who try to pursue it intellectually. Yet... If our worship is to be meaningful, and and if it's to be what God called it to be, we must really seek to conceive of God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. Now, to better understand all these things we've just described in these first 10 minutes, looking at the Holy Spirit, let's explore the characteristics of this one as he first appears in the second verse of the Bible at the creation of this planet you inhabit. And here's what I want you to notice. You're going to see God working as a collective. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And they're working as a collective on our behalf. Genesis 1, 1, and 2. "'In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters.'" Uh, last week we did hit in the beginning God, Bereshit Elohim Barach. It, you heard me describe the word Elohim, but let's just bear down on in the beginning God. When we saw that phrase last week, it presented a very clear description of the eternality of God. Not only that He is eternal, but also we saw that God is described in plural form. So let's put that word Elohim back up on the screen. Elohim is in your notes. And it's the word that's used to describe God in that first sentence, in the beginning, God. And I told you at the time, it's written in the Hebrew language as a plural word. I'm going to get technical with you for just a moment. And it should be stimulating these fantastic images of the Trinity. I'm picturing this like a beehive swarming with activity around creation. Elohim is actually a masculine plural noun in the Hebrew language. Uh, Before you tune me out on that and your eyes glaze over, especially if you didn't like English class, just hear this. There's a very specific way that that word ends. It ends in our pronunciation with an I-M, or in the Hebrew language, I-Y-M. If I was holding up here on the platform a log in my hand, we would say it like that, Mark's holding a log. But if I was holding two or three logs, we would add an S to it. That S makes it plural, meaning there's more than one. I am at the end of Elohim, that makes it a masculine plural noun, meaning there's more than one. However, while it's used of God in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God, Elohim, it's also used of false gods. So in Exodus chapter 20, Moses is on Mount Sinai, and God says to him, you shall have no other gods before me. It's the same word, Elohim. So you find the word Elohim used all the way throughout scripture describing God and it can't point specifically and prove to a trinity. But it opens the door. It opens the door for the doctrine of the plurality. It doesn't prove a triunity, but it opens the door. Now, there's multiple places in the Bible where the word is used really freely to describe God. Not just Moses doing it. Look at this, 2 Samuel 7.23. God, Elohim, went to redeem. And if you read it literally in the Hebrew language, it says, they went to redeem. Or this one, Psalm 58.11. There is a God, Elohim, that judges in the earth, Psalm 58, If you read it literally, it reads, they went to judge the earth. But one of the clearest references in the Bible, this is so cool that God did this, it is in Isaiah 48. If you have your own Bible with you this morning and you don't mind writing in your Bible, you might want to write Trinity, Isaiah 48, somewhere in the back of your Bible, somewhere where you can refer to it. I'm going to show you why. I think it's going to help you to go, wow, look at what God showed us here. This is part of the wonder of God because what Isaiah 48 does is it puts all the members of the Godhead together in one verse. Look with me at this. Isaiah 48, we'll start with just verse 12. Just hit a couple of verses. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first, I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. Just hit the pause button. Now, we're going to skip down from verse 13, and it's on the screen. You're going to see verse 16. There's a lot of filling in between, but keep going with this thought. Come near to me, hear this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there, and now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. Now verse 13 says, I laid the foundations of the earth, and I called them into existence. Church, who is responsible for calling the heavens and the earth into existence? Well, we know that one to be Jesus God the Son, at the moment of creation. Let me show you Colossians 1, if you haven't read that in a while. We did look at it four weeks ago, but here it is again. Colossians 1:16. For by Him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Here's what's really clear. Isaiah cannot be speaking of anyone other than God the Son because only God the Son called all things into existence. He said, I was there, I laid the foundation of the earth. But then in verse 16, he refers to himself with these pronouns, me and I, and he's distinguishing himself from the Lord God, Yahweh, and from the Spirit of God. So here you find in Isaiah 48, the Trinity is clearly defined, as clear as it is any place in the Old Testament. Now, translate all those thoughts to this. Even in the first verse of the first book of the first chapter of the Bible, when Elohim is used, it could be read this way, in the beginning, gods, the noun that's used there is plural. Yet the reference is to a single being. And then the image of the Trinity becomes much more clear when you add verse 2. So let's go. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And in the second verse of the Bible... In the very beginning, right at the start, immediately, you have the introduction of one of the members of the Trinity. The Halloween is now actually personified in verse 2 as the Spirit of God. So here's what I want you to do. Bear down on that phrase with me. And the Spirit of God was moving. We're just going to put those words on the screen for you to drink that in for a second because I want to know what that word moving means now, there's a Hebrew word that's used to describe it, as you might expect. And, and if I was from the Middle East, I probably could enunciate it really well with, with a guttural sound and, and with it hocking up from the throat. And you don't want me to hock it up from the throat. But it, it would sound like merikfet. And, and it comes from the gut and from the back of the throat. And they would enunciate it this way, but look very closely at the definition of merikfet. Let's put that on the screen for you. It's a very primitive word. And it means to brood, and it means to hover, to flutter. Lori and I have chickens at home, real chickens, not in the freezer, but, you know, laying eggs, chickens, right? And my wife loves to go out and collect those four or five eggs that they put out a day. Some of them are slackers. They don't always produce the way they're supposed to, all right? So, when you go into the chicken coop, you've got these chickens that are sitting in their nest, and they flutter at times, and they coo, and they will talk back to you, and they will do these things. They will shudder in the wings, and they're brooding over their nest. Well, my illustration is a chicken, but God has a far, far better illustration. God uses an eagle. Eagles trump chickens, right? So, let's go with eagles. Let's look at Deuteronomy 32.11. Deuteronomy Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that Merakhet that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. Now we see how that word is being used and being applied here. We begin to gain this picture at the very start of the Bible that this one whom Jesus promised would be your helper. Your teacher, the one who would guide you, the one who indwells you at this moment if you're a believer, the one who would convict you of sin, the one who is your counselor, we're told this one is hovering over the planet as a mother eagle broods over her young. The concept of Merakfet, as it's illustrated here, and it's being deliberately used by Moses He's being prodded by the Spirit of God to write about the Spirit of God and how the Spirit of God appeared at the scene of creation as a mother, caring and protecting. So get this imagery in your head. It's like the picture of this mom hovering over her young, the fluttering of the wings, anticipating something that's about to happen Hovering over the deep, the Bible says, waiting for the hatching of the dry ground to appear when it's called forth into existence." So clearly, the Holy Spirit is active in the work of creation, and, and it's actually affirmed in other places in the Bible. Look at Job 26:13. "By his spirit he adorned the heavens." So here's the image I have in my head. You've got this formless void that Moses has written about that the earth is this shaped molten sphere that has not yet been produced into what it is today that you inhabit. And this formless void of darkness is kept in check and hovered over at creation by God the Spirit. And God the Spirit is anticipating the moment when God the Son will call it forth into existence because all things are made by him and for him and through him We know that this is Jesus' action, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So you have this amazing beauty of harmony here, of God the Trinity in harmony, working as one collective on our behalf. And here's the accord that I see. You find God at the outset of Scripture, not in competition with each other, but in complement to each other, bringing forth for our behalf, working on our behalf in order to bring glory to God, they're about to build the cradle of life for their greatest creation, you. We're told in the Scriptures that humanity is God's greatest creation, and all three members of the Trinity have come together to produce this. No wonder on the night that Jesus is arrested... And he's in the garden praying, Restore to me the glory that I once had with you before the world was. And he goes on to pray for you. And maybe you've not seen this before in Scripture, but I want to show this to you. Jesus' final prayer, echoing this moment in creation that we've just talked about. Look with me at this, John 17, 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Stop right there. I don't pray for these alone, meaning the apostles and the disciples. I pray for all those living in 2021 who go to New Hope Church in October, who are believers in me. I'm praying for those people at that same time. For those who will believe in me through their word, meaning the word of the disciples That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Why does Jesus have to pray for that? Because it is not normal for fallen humans to be united. What's normal is division. It's not normal for us in our human nature as fallen sinners to be united. What you see when you see division, you see humanity at its worst. Division is the poison pill that works against people coming to faith in Jesus. That's why he's praying against division. There's so much angst and disagreement and division in culture already. The last place that it's needed is among God's people in God's church. You don't need it there But Jesus prays against division because he knows it's our human nature. Uh, Lest you think I'm building a case for New Hope to get our act together on this issue of division, I'm not. I love the way that we get together, the way that we work together, and the way we celebrate each other. I'm talking about the reality of what Jesus is praying against, that division will actually destroy and keep people from coming into the kingdom. Before the fall of Adam and Eve, before sin entered this world, I am absolutely confident that what you're looking at is the perfect marriage between Adam and Eve. They're in complete harmony. Everything they did is in harmony because they're a reflection of the Trinity, which is in harmony. But when the fall comes and sin enters this world, it doesn't take Adam long before he starts throwing insults towards Eve. Well, you're the one that bit the apple. He starts taking this accusations towards her, and she throws things back, and division creeps in because sin has arrived. But with the Trinity, with the Trinity, they do everything in harmony. There's an absence of malice. There's an absence of selfish ambition. Now, add to our sin nature this issue. We have the sin nature already built within us to divide there is this added dimension of living in the West. Our rugged individualism here in the United States of America is a really lauded value, and we celebrate our independence. I love our independence. I love the Declaration of Independence. I love that there's a declaration against tyranny of evil. But we laud it to such a degree that we embrace this thought of, don't you tell me what to do. I'm an American. That's actually... Contrary to scripture, we hold up independence to such a degree that we laud it as an attribute, and it's all good if it's kept in proper balance. When that same value is weaponized and used to divide people, it wars against the Spirit of God within a believer who calls us to have each other's back, that we would be working in harmony to accomplish the goal of advancing the kingdom. Let me just get real practical with you for a moment. The relationship among the members of the Trinity is the model for believers, especially when it comes to witnessing to people who don't yet know God. Rich captured this thought. You'll read it this week in the book, and I'm going to show you a quote of his in just a minute, a little study guide. We have these thoughts in our head. You do you, and I'll do me, and don't you dare tell me what to do. I might tell you what to do, but don't you tell me tell me what to do. And we resonate with that because we understand that. Americans are really, really good at this. But catch the contrast in Scripture. God the Father sends God the Son in harmony and in concert with the Holy Spirit to rescue the planet, to bring salvation to all of humanity, to His creation, So Rich really resonates with me when he writes what he does this week as you read it in the study guide. By the way, if you haven't picked one up yet, do that. There's only like 60 of them left. Like 600 of them went out the door last week. But there's a few of them still available. It really resonates with me as we move toward this moment of creation. Next week, we're going to watch the story unfold. We've put week one and week two together and we're gonna watch the moment of creation birth And this really resonates with me because what we're seeing is the absolute perfect plan of God being executed by the synchronization of the Trinity. Three independent working as one together to carry out an objective for the glory of God. So this is what Rich notes in his study guide this week. That each of us can participate with each other in advancing the kingdom and still be individually significant Watch this quote with me on the screen. I think it was a really good insight. If we fashion our relationships after the Trinity, we can live without the drama and competition. Two believers with completely different roles can contribute to the whole and not feel like one is winning and the other is losing. Well done, Rich Bruce. It's really good. That's a great insight, church. That's a a great statement, a reality. So with that thought in mind, we're going to end this, and I want you to see one more time the way that Jesus prayed for this issue of unity of believers. Look with me at this again one more time, John 17, 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. It's not normal for humans to be united. The relentless division that's in our culture should not surprise you. Our culture needs Jesus. Amen. Amen. We agree with that? Unity is of God. So to be normal within the body of Christ is to be unified because we're a reflection of the Holy Spirit. So here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Go into all the world, whatever you're going to do this week, and make disciples knowing that the Trinity has your back because that's what God does. And your family here at New Hope is here to equip you and support you and undergird you to help equip you for the advancing of the kingdom. Because the world is watching the division and they're just as aware of it as you are and wondering what in the world's going on. How remarkable would it be? For a group of people to be so unified that you would actually have a fragrance about you, a sweet aroma, so that people would go, wow, there's something different about those people. They smell. They smell good. They're not divided. They're united. And, And Jesus says that issue of division causes people not to believe. I pray that they would be one so that the world may know, that the world may believe that you sent me. So church, how about if we allow the fruits of the Spirit of God to be seen in us to such a degree that the world would believe that Jesus is real? Would you be good with that? All right, let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for every single soul who occupies this space and is watching virtually at home. I pray, Father, that your blessing would rest on each of us for having spent time and studying your word, but also that we would have a clear sense of how we need to make adjustments in our life. where We've allowed gossip and division and anger to creep in. That we would surrender that to you, And we would put ourselves in a place where we're unified and looking for more that unites us than what we do that divides us, to the degree that many, many people would come into the kingdom. So let it be said of us, Father, here at New Hope, that we're looking to advance your kingdom through the unity of the believers. We pray for that in the same way that Jesus did, that we would be one, and that you would use that attitude as we walk into the work week, as we walk into our classrooms, as we enter our homes this afternoon. Keep us in check on the issue of division, Father. I pray for this in the mighty, matchless name, the living Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. I'll be uh, down here in the front if we haven't had a chance to connect. If you're new here, I'd love to meet you. And the prayer room is open this morning if you need somebody to pray with you. Otherwise, have a great week.